Secular, sinful Israeli speaks her holy, religious, pious friend. I'm Yael here with Chayalea. Hi, Chayalea. Hi. Do you want to introduce our guest? You're doing such a good job, Yael. <laughs> why do you why do you punt it when you're so good at it? That's how she gets me to do things I don't want to <laughs> do. True. She's like, you do such a good job. But we're very excited because we have Mike Pesca with us. Hi, Mike. I know. Hello. It's intimidating. It's, it's intimidating. Yeah. Yeah. This is tactics you use on one of your children or all of your children, <laughs> <Yeah>. right? You <laughs> do such a good job. You both build them up and get out of doing things. <laughs> That's exactly. That's but exactly if you don't right. know Mike, he's host of The Gist, which is the longest running, running daily news and analysis podcast. Is that, wow. is that, did I say it right? Kind of like I think us. so, yeah. We're the longest running um, podcast with Jews with like Orthodox and secular Jews talk about like hot dudes from the 90s. I think that's, yes. we're the lo- that's oh, what yeah. we do. Well, by uh, longest running, do you mean going on since the uh, start of time or do you mean each episode is just the longest? <laughs> talking about different Corys. Listen, depends. If you play your cards right. Oh my God, yeah. the Corys. Um, but Mike, you were like, you've, you've been everywhere in journalism. You're like from the belly of the beast, right? You're at, uh, NPR for 10 years. Yeah. Um, you were most recently at Slate and you wrote a book. All our guests have written books. I feel like that's... I know. They're smart. They're smart. I was but- technically the editor of a book and I got 23 people to write it for me. But please, <laughs> the plug the book. Way. Say the name but of the book. my favorite topic, sports. So upon further review, <laughs> the greatest what ifs in sports history. Yeah. Um, there, It's great. If you love like balls and grass and... <laughs> Running, it's just, I really recommend this book. I'll tell you a funny Israel-related story about that. So I was, like I said, I was 20, 23 to 25 contributors, and I reached out to 40 and some fell away, and I screwed up by not getting a couple of high-profile people who really wanted to write for me, and I was like, let's just tweak that concept more, oh. and eventually... They were like, yeah, I can't do it. And then they go on to, you know, win Emmys for TV shows you all have heard of. But one household name writer who was a pretty good friend of mine, we've lost a little touch, said, here's what I want to do. What if the Berlin, the uh, Jews killed in the Berlin Olympics had been saved? And I'm like, okay, Mm. I understand your point. What do you want to say about it? What would have happened? And he, his point is, nothing would have changed. They would have hated us anyway. I'm like, that's not a good chapter. (laughs) Maybe we would have been like world, you know, we would dominate wrestling. Because they, they took out our, our wrestling team. Yes, wrestling, fencing. They, they were all amazing. The, it's yeah. interesting all the uh, one-on-one combat sports the Jews were pretty good at. Yeah. They're we're very, not yeah. great at sports. I mean, like, we're just, it's just not our thing, I feel like. I, I, mean, I don't Once know. in a while, we have an Israeli in the NBA for, like, one and a half seasons. Yeah, I'm Rick Haspi. Yeah. Greatest, greatest Jewish basketball player of all time is Dolph Shays. And so it cuts both ways. The greatest ever. And his name is Adolf. <laughs> <laughs> My God. That's so true. But do you know the, do you know about the Maccabi games? Are sure. you like so yeah. it just makes me laugh because No, you, you say Maccabi, but I always Ma- heard Maccabee. Maccabee or <laughs> well, Maccabee. Maccabee, Maccabee are the yeah. weird, strange games. Yeah, yeah, yeah seriously. <laughs> Very yeah, spooky games. Maccabee. That's what they call it. I don't or know. I didn't name it. Other but the funny thing is, is like, it just makes me laugh about the Jewish community because like there's the regular Olympics, then there's like the special Olympics, and then there's the Jewish Olympics. Like we're not even good enough for the special Olympics. We have to have a third Olympics that go on. It's just, it makes me laugh. And we make our kids feel like they're good at it when they know they're not. Like you just, you're 
third rate at best. You're not even in the Special Olympics. You're great but against whatever. other teams. Yeah, you're. <laughs> Wait a minute. You think you think there's a hierarchy, and you're slotting Special Olympics between the yes. Olympics, Olympics, and the Jew Olympics? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Listen, if you're yes. blind, you. I mean, yes. you can still haul ass in a marathon. That's Oscar, right. the guy Oscar who killed a lady in South Africa with no legs, like he's like he's better than any Jew at running. Well, okay. that's because he has, you know, special robot legs. Yeah. Plus he's out, you know, he Probably, just got out. I know. I'll tell Probably you little... without his legs, he's still better than re- most Jews <laughs> at running. I guarantee. Yeah, it could be. He got out and I immediately said, sometimes I do this. I had a thought and it was a bad thought and it was related to ankle monitors, you know, oh him God. getting out. And I just Googled, or not Googled, I tweeted or Twittered just a search for ankle monitor and Pistorius and everyone had made the joke. And I said, thank you. I shall not. But I guess on this show I did. Yeah, thank you. I hadn't thought about that. Actually, it's a good that's one. What, that's what the show is for. No, seriously. Yeah, workshopping bad jokes. <laughs> well, I just, I know you're, you are you into sports? I mean, obviously, like, you cover sports. But, like, do you enjoy watching sports, following sports? And what's, and which is your favorite? For Yeah, for seven years, I was a sports correspondent. That was my job. I definitely liked it and like it still. I like football and basketball the best. I, you know, when I was, I was a political reporter, then a sports reporter, and now mostly news and politics. And when I was a sports reporter, I said to myself, I'd be reading all this stuff anyway. I'd be as immersed. I like sports. And then when I got out of sports reporting, I was like, thank God I don't have to read all that stuff. Thank God I could just ignore whole swaths of athletic endeavor. You know, like me telling myself, oh, the NBA. No, I do love the NBA. But me telling myself, oh, the NHL, something worth paying attention to. No, it's not. I mean, if you want it to be, if you're Canadian and you have to love the NHL, fine. But I don't. What else do you have going on if you're a Canadian? That's right. I mean, I have four boys, and they are so sports obsessed. I've, I don't know. It's like really not normal. Like I have to start thinking about marrying them off, and like. Uh, the only thing my 21-year-old son talks about is sports. So I'm like, what do I say? I need a girl who either is deaf and won't care what he says, or <laughs> yeah. she has to be into sports. I don't, I'm like, no, 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 no. This is the know. greatest gift. It's the greatest social lubricant. You get into any situation and the husbands are standing around staring that's, at each other like a bunch true. of, uh, you know, maladjusted birds. And then eventually <laughs> someone says, the Orioles? Or yeah. someone says, you know, the, uh, the Toronto Raptors and boom, you're off. That's right, so, so it's it's just an entree into any society, yeah. talking to any person. It gets you have to know your crowd, and so when Chuck Todd hosted Meet the Press, Meet the Press, Meet the Press, <laughs> yeah. he used to way over index for talking to the Southern senator about their college football team because Chuck Todd likes University of Miami Hurricanes, and so that got boring to the rest of us. But it was yeah. just a <laughs> private conversation, you know, him or Carville with LSU. Carville can talk to anyone from the South because it's all college football, SEC, and they know he's a huge uh, LSU expert. And so all these people who would be naturally inclined to hate James Carville do say, that guy knows his LSU. Right. And it's it's real currency. I think it's fabulous. It's a, a great Veep episode where she goes on Meet the Press and they have her <laughs> prepped with like her sports thing to say, but then they switch hosts on her. <laughs> and it's somebody else who likes a different team and it like completely throws her off. <laughs> That's awesome. That's, oh, so funny. that's such a good show. That, so you know that show is good because when you just describe the plot, it's mm-hmm. almost as funny as watching the episode. <laughs> it's amazing. It's the yeah. only show I think in my life that I finished. First of all, I don't finish shows. I'm a one season yeah. girl, if anything. Oh, okay. But I finished season five and I immediately went back 
to watch like yeah. season one. And, and it's come to real life. Yeah, we now have exactly. <laughs> Selena Meyer is our vice president right now. Yeah. It's Although I'm amazing. a little angry at at Julia Louis Dreyfus and all those all those people who were very like I don't know, very quiet after October seventh and then said something like three weeks later, like praying for peace and love in the region. <laughs> well, but, a quarter a quarter of the Seinfeld gang uh did yeah. go to Barry Kibbutz. Yeah. yeah. And so that's yeah. I guess it's more of a Jessica Seinfeld thing. But you yeah, know Yeah, there was a great the husband's tweet. into sports and drags the drags the wife drags him along. There's a great uh there's a great photo that I, I tweeted that um of a guy in his like burning in his burnt out house in his father's burnt out house in Berry with Seinfeld. His yeah. father was killed there and he was like, my father was such a big Seinfeld fan that if he came back right now, he would be so happy. Even in his like burnt house, he'd be Aww. like, so happy that Jerry Seinfeld is in my living <laughs> oh room. Oh my god, that's so sad. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't know if the phrase "worth it" comes to mind. <laughs> you know, <laughs> look if this you know, one we, to take to get Seinfeld him. here. He's not around. <clears throat> Wait, do you have uh, advice before we move on? I just one more sports question. My my kids are diehard Patriots fans and Angels fans. So like oh, the two most painful franchises right now. What advice do you have for these kids? Should they like move on and find new teams or should they stick okay. with it? As a Jets fan or as really any fan <laughs> of anyone true. other than maybe the Kansas City Chiefs to have any <laughs> inkling true. of sorrow or pity <laughs> for the Patriots fan, a team that has so <laughs> dominated football for 20 years, it's appalling. It appalls me. Now, the Angels, on the other hand, oh my God. and I... I Assume they pick them for religious reasons. Yes, Seraphim. No, we live no. right near there. We live. We live near there. That is it. Now that is a cursed it's franchise. So painful. That is the exact opposite of the Patriots. All they have <laughs> in New England is cold and misery, and the Patriots come along to deliver them to a little bit of joy. Whereas there in Orange County, all you have is sun <laughs> and beauty, and the Angels are but a byproduct of. <sighs> Um, wastefulness and poor luck. And they had the two, think about this. They had the two best, sorry to bore everyone. No, two, I know. This tells you something about baseball. They had pretty much the two best players in baseball, one after the other. And for a time, Mike Trout, Shoei Atani could be, you know, you could consider them the best and like second or third best player in the sport. There is no other sport where I if know. you have two of the top five players, you're anything but dominant. And all they do is lose. <laughs> all know. they do is lose. I yes. know. It's so painful. It's I'm, so glad they're, I'm so glad they're Angels fans that will build so much character. Yeah. It makes them so much more interesting than anyone who's like, oh, I it guess is. I'll root for the Dodgers who spent a billion and a half dollars so they can't lose. It but this is like with this their marriage sad. prospects to deal with. Like you know, but disappointment. This is sad. Now he's at, now Otani's going to be on the Dodgers. It's just so painful. My kids are in yeshiva. Everyone there are are Dodgers fans, and my kids are like with their full on Angels gear. It's just so painful. Like he yeah. should have gone anywhere else. It would have been better. But whatever. This is. But doesn't it show? Doesn't it show who's? You know, it's a little like maybe the Israel conflict, uh, the Gaza <laughs> war, where everyone says, "Oh, sure, yeah, Israel, sure, they're fine," and then it all happens, and boom, you see who's out protesting. That's right. That's right. In the streets, That's you right. see who's taking the other side. <laughs> you see who you know. That's right. Mon they can monitors all the weird media that yeah. talks. And we about don't change. The you know, we don't start rooting for a different country, right? Just because right. we're in a bad space. <laughs> That's right. You got to root for the com the country that maybe is experiencing a little bit of unpopularity if you yeah. go by what the BBC is reporting. Yeah. <laughs> I guess you're right. As a Jets fan, you know what it feels like. So mm -hmm. I understand. I just went to a Jets game once. I don't know why. And I don't like experience PTSD. 
But I swear when those air raid sirens go off at the Jets games, because it's just, I, I, it was not my favorite thing. Yeah, it is funny how when you think about it, so much of the Jets apparatus and fandom is based on not just the worst traumas of much of the world, <laughs> the worst traumas of New York City. What's the worst thing that happened in New York City? Two Jets yeah. fly into <laughs> our buildings. And who bore the brunt of it? Well, Fireman. Who's the Jets' biggest fan? This guy called Fireman Ed, who leads the air raid. Oh, my God. God, it's, you're it's right. True. I never even thought of that. It's very sick. That's and the so owner funny. of the team is... Uh, you know, the heir to the Johnson & Johnson fortune, Woody Johnson, mm -hmm. and he was uh, Donald Trump's ambassador to the UK. Oh and there's God. a whole, there's the a whole thing, connection. You know what the worst thing about the Jets And this is my sole I mean, there's plenty to choose from. Go ahead. They're in Jersey. Yeah, they yeah. are in Jersey. Right. When I was growing up there on Long Island, we went to Shea Stadium. Oh, we went nice. to the games. Mm -hmm. I was, uh, my dad had season tickets. It was more of a middle-class uh, aspirational thing to have. We're at the last ever game at Shea Stadium. Oh. Uh, they played the Pittsburgh Steelers. Mm -hmm. And at the end of the game, people had torn up all this turf from Shea Stadium and the police were confiscating the turf. You're not allowed to just take <laughs> pieces of the grass with Fascist. you. But they had them in mm -hmm. a huge pile and like, what are they going to do? Enter them as evidence? <laughs> so my dad, who was with me at the game and helped Franco Harris, great Steelers running back, get back to the team bus, he said, hey, can I have some of that grass? And the Police was like, who cares? So th to this day, Aww. in the backyard of the house where my parents still live, in the driveway in which I was born, there's some Shea Stadium Jets. Aww. That's amazing. That's you're, such you're a nice born, story. You were raised on Long Island? I was raised on Long Island. I was born in the driveway of the house my parents still live <laughs> oh in. Oh, my God. 51 oh. years and 364 days ago. Oh, as oh. Awesome. Yeah. Um, and you're, Which part I, of Long Island? Uh, South Shore, town oh. called Oceanside. Oh, Oceanside. Baldwin, yeah. Oceanside, Baldwin area. You're a, you're a pizza bagel? Is that the correct term? I mean, I guess. <laughs> the, the <laughs> Either the pizza or Italian. bagel. You know what? You know what offends me about that? Nothing really offends me. But <laughs> it's just that pizza bagel is a bad food. It's taking two great foods and making each worse. Well, it's no, subtraction well, it by addition. Depends. If you do it at home and you just take a bagel and put like ketchup and cheese on it, there's nothing ketchup? better. Ketchup? Ketchup? That's yeah. what I'm not marinara. Eating. No, ketchup. no, I'm not half Italian. Sorry. Ketchup. Orthodox <laughs> Jews eat ketchup with everything. I, I thought ketchup was delicious. Like, it was like salt. Like we put it on everything. Like oh yeah. So, so you have that in common with Middle Americans. That's, yeah, exactly. that's the bond. Where are you on mayo? Very little mayo. I love mayo. But Orthodox Jews use mayo in everything because it's like a dairy substitute, right? Yeah. Well, I guess like in salads and stuff. Yeah. I guess. Yeah. But not much. And then, and then there's the uh, your butter hacks. Yeah, your no shed butter. spreads, your margarines, yeah. but yeah. lots of margarine with everything. Lots of margarine. <laughs> yes. Yeah, it's fun. Although the new generation it. is using less, we're more health conscious. More health so conscious. We do more then, oils. Oh, good. Very. There yeah. are a lot of vegans <laughs> in Israel, but I don't think there's like an overlap with religious. I think it's just more of like a. No, trying People to be like kosher vegan. and vegan is, it's hard. Like, it's annoying. I walked by you a homeless think? guy yesterday, and I know him actually. Like, he's <laughs> a pain in the ass. Um, and his sign said, raw vegan food only, please. Oh, that is so <laughs> America 2023. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He's paleo homeless. Yeah. <laughs> so let me ask you, do you think, let's get into the mind of God uh, yes. for a second. When <laughs> That's a good thing when we have a podcaster on because yeah. they end up interviewing us. Yes, good. That's I good because we like talking. 
When he laid out the rules of kosher and said, uh, well, you know, the whole no mixing dairy and meat, and then you have, it's different, it's different amounts of time either way, right? Dairy than meat is like, what is it? An hour, what's the other way? An hour, an hour, and from meat to dairy, six hours. Oh, wow. And do you know if that, is that very much, uh, does that very much comport with digestion? Is that accurate? I mean, that's what they tell us in school. Doctors figured out it takes exactly six hours for your meat enzymes to digest within your stomach lining. And before they, this isn't even where I was going, but this is interesting. Before there were doctors or the notion of enzymes, do you know what the, the maybe there was no notions of hours, but what were in 1412, what was the hour rule? It was the same. I mean, we've been following this for a long time. Okay, hours, so yeah. so then they invented enzymes and they invented doctors yeah. and the do- the enzyme <laughs> doctors were like, my God, we were right. They were right. We were right. <laughs> so here's my question. When they say, okay, so you, you can't have butter, you can't grease the pan with butter right? Um, because that would be mixing dairy and meat, but then science invents margarine and you could use margarine. Right. Um, is it, is there any, I have a couple questions. Is there any portion of the keeping kosher community who says, well, that's against the spirit of the law? Or does everyone say great workaround? Or is it not even seen as a workaround? It's seen as great workaround. And we love figuring out ways you to- You guys are good at workarounds. Yeah, we love like the that. Shabbos Goy, that's a huge yeah, workaround. Yeah, With Shabbos, but, it's a little different. Kosher people are like, any hack we'll take. We don't care. Yeah. Like, it's amazing. We're happy. So yeah. this is this is a I think a very compelling argument. I'm sure you've heard too that the genius of Judaism is that there are all these loopholes. Yeah. And so this is why <laughs> Jews are great arguers and you know what is a great lawyer but a Talmudic scholar two generations removed. That's right. And, <laughs> and so I do think like an M Night Shyamalan movie the <laughs> thing you think is the thing is not the real thing. It's right. the workaround that actually is the genius yeah. of That's what God was thinking. God didn't want you to be kosher. God wanted you to figure out ways to work around the rules of kosher. That's right. Sharpened the mind, sharpened the intellect, made the Jews the people they are. Well, and God also didn't want us socializing with non-Jews. That's what (laughs) I think the laws of kosher are. Not that's not it doesn't say it explicitly, but I I have a feeling that that is probably one of the biggest reasons for the laws of kosher. But yeah. Okay, so then his take, I'm gonna say his, on the <laughs> non-chosen people. I always thought in the hierarchy there was a there were a close second, but you're putting them essentially where the Maccabi games are to the regular Olympics. <laughs> no, no. It's no I don't even think people. I don't even think there's a hierarchy. I just think God didn't want Jews mixing with other. This is going to come out sounding so bad, but you know what I mean. Like, not. It's not less than. It's equal, but you know. Separate, separate but equal. equal. Separate uh-huh. but equal. So God's God's a gigantic elitist. Yes, I just I think so. A little, no, little bit racist. No, seriously though, honestly, there is something about food. Sharing food is definitely a different level of friendship. You know, when you can invite people into your home and serve them food and be able to feed them. You know, that's like a a level of friendship that sort of surpasses like a casual acquaintance that you would be a neighbor with. <clears throat> and so I think kosher laws are like a guardrail against people you know, inviting you to their home, like assimilating. I mean, that's, yeah. I, I really think so. I mean, being honest, like, I think that's what it is. And I, I'm friends with many people. Most of my friends don't keep kosher and it is different. Like I will have them over at my house over and over again, and they'll eat my food and eat my home-cooked food, and I'll never be able to go to their homes and eat their food. And it is a bit of a funny 
like imbalance kind of. I don't know. I mean, a lot of my friends listening know what I'm talking about, right? So yeah, they'll take me out to dinner to a kosher restaurant to, you know, as a, to reciprocate. I've had friends come and cook at my house. But there is sort of an imbalance in the relationship when you're not eating in each other's homes the same way, mm. you know? And God wanted it that way. That's interesting. <laughs> well, no, I mean, there's no evidence in the Bible that uh, God or anyone in a God-like position, I'm going into New Testament, which is, yeah. I should tell you, this other book. That yeah. it, whatever, a whole <laughs> sequel. Thing. Yeah, it's just like, you know, unauthorized exactly. sequel. There's no Fantastic. evidence that democracy in any way was not only seen as a good thing, but even a thing. Right. Even the references to the Lord and, yeah. the, you know, no. we are his servant, there's no inkling that democracy would be anything that God smiled upon. And no. I see that. I see, I see that right. a lot. Right. No, totally not. God did not care about democracy. I mean, I hate to say it, but no, he didn't care about democracy. I mean, he had, there were kings and it was God's authoritarian. I mean, that's yeah. just the reality. But the rabbis were more open to the ideas of democracy in a way. But, but they were the strict. rabbis. I mean, yeah. there are councils of rabbis, but they're still a head rabbi and they're really important. Yeah. Well, like, yeah. there was a Sanhedrin that was, like, a body of rabbis that really were able to, like, they, they meted out the law, you know, and then the Anshay Knesset. Like the I mean, there's a whole, yeah, they, there, there were councils that were, like, the, the final arbiter of, uh, of the law. I mean, and, and Judaism has a very, like, s- serious system of, of courts, you know, and they, I mean, all the way our system here is set up is kind of m- mimicking the biblical court system. But, yeah, democracy, no. Like, God probably looks at our our people and say, look at you shits. Like, you elect Donald Trump and Joe Biden, and you're going to do it again. I mean, it's not a good idea. Like, no. I don't know if democracy is such a great idea. What is democracy? But, you know, <laughs> if if done well, yeah. an expression of the median belief of <laughs> right. the people who are given yeah. the vote. And, then, and when, when yeah. you think about the median belief, you know, half the beliefs are worse than that one. Right, <laughs> right, right. And it's not like... Um, it is not preordained or guaranteed that the median belief will be the right belief, right, <laughs> the moral right, belief, right. the belief that's actually in the best interest of the people. So yeah. I k- kind of like democracy when done well, yeah. but it's we do also default to, and you know, I do think we pick and choose. A lot of times we criticize are the same people who are saying that, you know, electing this one party will be the death of democracy when there is a very clear um, message that this is actually what the people want, then the whole yeah. idea of, well, we don't want to kill democracy by giving the people what they want. Right, <laughs> right, 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 right. Yeah, yeah, Ellen, I think maybe women should not have the right to vote. We're just, we're debating. It's, it's a conversation. Yeah, it's an ongoing know. conversation. Ongoing. I also think the, the voting age should be raised to like 45. Yeah, and mm-hmm. you should have to own land. So basically male landowners. <laughs> I think it should be raised to about 45 and below 15. Yeah. So yeah. there should be anyone like 14 to 3 should vote and then 45 and up. I That's don't understand people the donut. who don't <laughs> vote. Idea. Like in Israel, we vote like the voting rates are, are pretty high. And I just, I don't understand. I understand maybe you forgot or maybe, but, but like there are people who as a principle don't vote. 
Yeah. yeah. And I don't Well, I understand that. that. I very much understand that in America. So a little political science. You know, in Israel, uh, you've, every, every vote really does count. And like three more votes allow yeah. your member of your party to get an extra seat in the Knesset. And mm-hmm. there's, no, there's no gerrymandering, right? You don't serve um, a geographical area. Mm-hmm. So in America, especially presidential elections, with, which get a disproportionate amount of attention, we go in knowing two-thirds of the states do not not matter. And I can, as anything other than a symbolic gesture, tell my kids or my kid who will be 18 by the time the, no, that's not true. He'll be uh, 17, but let's, he's into voting. But I can't tell anyone who's like, I don't want to vote. My vote doesn't count. I can't actually tell them, yes, it does in America, Mm -hmm. in the electoral college. I a hundred percent can say that in most parliamentary systems. And when there's a parliamentary system that does not go by um, area or district, but is just national. There have been many instances where three more votes mean yes. one more person in the mm-hmm. Knesset. And yeah, it's a right. smaller country, and that's usually comports with better governance and better democracy. There are plenty look of at, options. There, absolutely, there are more mm-hmm. people to vote for. You don't feel like, oh, I'm being, uh, only two parties are being thrust upon me. Mm-hmm. There's the whole, oh, I have these fringe beliefs in the American system. It's like, so therefore, just stick them in my pocket and don't participate. In Israel, yeah. it's like, well, if this one minor party gets over a threshold, they actually get a seat in yeah. Congress slash the Knesset. And then in Australia, they do it really well where you spend some time, right? Mm-hmm. There was, uh, they do uh, sausages on the day of voting. <laughs> so everyone comes out and eats the sausage. Right. Like, it's smart. this huge... It's this huge sausage, sausage party fest. that has some. Yes, it's a sausage fest, but the women can vote too. And they have. <laughs> See, and they, now have, they need to. They need to fix that. But I, if I were, if I were a U.S. citizen, um, I would make sure to vote in all the local elections. I think that's. Because you see the the people who are running like these city halls and city councils, and you know the school boards, and they're so like so many of them are just like the people who are willing to take the time to do that crap. And not necessarily the people who have your best interests in mind. And I don't know, I I hate to say this, I don't think I know anybody who votes in like local elections. And I think it's the most important thing. Well, I'll tell you a couple other reasons. So you're articulating like very local elections and people who you know and touch and the city, the, um, you know, city hall. But let's take New York City, the New York City Council. Let's take the U.S. House of Representatives. Mm -hmm. The whole game is the primaries. I mean, mm-hmm. there's only 10% of the uh, Congress is ever going to possibly be threatened to lose their seat just because that's how their district, and it's not just districting. People blame gerrymandering on everything, but it doesn't really matter how you gerrymander much of the country. They're very red or very blue. So when AOC wins, and maybe she's a bad example because now that people know her, they'd probably vote for her again. She's very charismatic. But Mm -hmm. when Ayanna Presley wins or when Jamal Bowman won, to take an example of someone I'm not that happy with, when he won for the first time, all that mattered was the primary, and people paid attention because it was somewhat high-profile primary, but only three or 4,000 people vote. You know, AOC was elected with like 7,000 votes and only a few thousand more than the incumbent. Mm-hmm. And you really can make a huge difference, a world-changing difference, right. if you're one of those 7,000 people who vote in a primary, which is held in June or sometime, sometimes it was September, but then they moved them to June. They do this on purpose. And it really is the, if you look at um, all these city councils throughout America where defund the police became, well, in a couple of them, it actually became 
uh, policy, but most of them, they just flirted with the idea, but in a bad way. The city councilors who were representing sometimes hundreds of thousands of people got elected practically, practically speaking, with yeah. only three or 4,000 yeah. votes. Mm. It's a huge shame. It's a huge disgrace. It is. Jamal Bowman, I think, was he the one who defeated Elliot Engel? In yes. the? I mean, think about that. Elliot Engel, who was in Congress for years and years, a Democrat, super pro-Israel Democrat. I mean, when the Iran deal was going down, he stood up against Obama, even though it was his own party, and he took a lot of hits for that. And this guy comes in and gets, and, and I wonder how many thousands of votes it was. And they say very we control few. everything. Yeah, exactly. We missed that one. No, I, right. I just see now with this local stuff, it's so important to be involved. Well, Elliot Engel was, you know, he was old and losing yeah. it and was, and the other guy, Bowman, had, you know, great patter and I, yeah. before people got to know him, had this uh, compelling biography, right. a middle school uh principal and he was saying all the things that in 2020 in June of 2020 when the election took place yeah. people wanted to hear now i think maybe they'll reconsider so that vote was i have in front of me bowman 49,000 engel 36,000 wow mm, so you know right. 13,000 people right. every congressional district has 700,000 some odd people right so, you know, right. you're talking about a difference of 13,000, which is so much bigger, actually, than most of these primaries are conducted mm -hmm. on. Engel's going to get a challenger. Also, they redistricted um, him, so Engel wasn't, uh, the district wasn't as heavily Jewish. But yeah. Bowman's going to get a challenger. You know, he pulled that fire alarm. He pulled I know, that of, was pulled a lot of shit. <laughs> funny story. <laughs> Not a metaphor. That's something that actually happened. Yeah. That's such a funny story. But, like, you well, know, if you if you ignite a community, I mean, like, right now in Long, I live in Long Beach, and our city council just passed this stupid resolution that calling for a ceasefire, but it, that wasn't the important thing. They had a meeting of hours and hours of vile anti-Semitism. Yeah, like, horrible. And they're going to pay a price. Like, the Jewish community here in Long Beach is so activated right now to defeat these city council people and even the mayor. They're angry at the mayor. And, you know, you get some people with some deep pockets who are angry. You can make a change. You can really right. affect city politics. Yeah, way. and I think that the um, those politicians in Long Beach and Long Beach University of California, Long Beach was the site of one of the um, paraglider. Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's uh, Kyle. Two, day yeah. two days after October seventh, October 9th, we had a paraglider uh, imagery on our campus. They were great. serious. They should have paraglided into campus with those flyers. <laughs> Uh, you know, it's Long Beach. So Long Beach is what, like 45% Hispanic? Yeah, something like that. But the thing is, they might not yeah. be motivated to defend the nation of Israel. If you look right. at polling, Hispanics are probably less pro Israel than, um, well, than, than non Hispanic whites. But their interests are not being served by no. going all the way in the other direction and taking all this time on yeah. nonsense that doesn't improve the lives of Hispanics. So That's right. if Jewish leaders can, or Jewish activists or just motivated people who think it's crazy, can work with the uh, local community to point out to them that every hour you spend on, you know, the wording of a resolution about how much to lightly praise Hamas <laughs> is an hour not spent on improving your lives. I think that's, that's how you get some. That's right. Well, that's what's crazy about this is like you spend six hours in the city of Long Beach talking about a country far away of which you have zero 
you know, influence on while you could be, I don't know, picking up all the homeless people that are lying outside the city council office. No, I think that from what I read, what the IDF does before they go into a tunnel and pump it with seawater is they Mm -hmm. check in on the Cambridge (laughs) City Council to see where they should position the hoses. They actually have a big, like, whiteboard with all the Uh city councils in the, the, um, Kiria, in the, like, headquarters, and they just cross cross them off, and it's getting pretty dicey right now. That's right. So we want to talk to you about your Israel trip, but more importantly, I really want to hear, I mean, I don't know how Jewish you are or what your Jewish identity means to you or what your Israel, if you had a relationship with Israel before, if you could just tell us a little bit about that. And I'm I'm really, you know, Yael and I both come from worlds that were seeped in Israel before October 7th. And so I'm very interested in Jews who've kind of like popped up now and are are taking this on. And I'm, I, I just would love to hear sort of your journey. Yeah, yeah. before so October 7th. So I grew up on Long Island, which makes you at least a third Jewish (laughs) just by being there. I was literally half Jewish, if this was such a thing. My mom being the Jewish one, my dad being the Catholic one. My dad was always more religious and is to this day than my mom was. But my dad has also said, if I wasn't Catholic, I'd definitely be Jewish. Like, is the is the lure of guilt just the idea of guilt that strong for you, Dad? Guilt and food. Yeah, and talking with your hands—it's that important to you, Dad. But no, he always he always did say that, and I did a little bit of a Catholic education, but the only time I was ever in a temple is to attend a friend's bar mitzvah or a funeral, and later on, a wedding. So I didn't grow up in my town. There were the Jewish kids who went to Hebrew school. They were all my friends. There were the Catholic kids who didn't, and then there was me. Yeah. <laughs> and then I went to college, and there was a Jewish fraternity called AE Pi, yes. and I joined AE Pi. And to this day, many of my friends, most of, I, I would say, most of my best friends in the world were, yes, the majority of my best friends in the world were uh, in that Brothers. fraternity. Mm. But I was counted, and I think this was just like as a diversity statistic. You know, we're not all Jewish. We have, <laughs> and then they list the three black guys, the one Greek guy, and Pesca. We got Pesca. And that alone would be like, oh, yeah, ends in a vowel. He's not Jewish. I'd be like, you know, I kind of am. <laughs> I would, if you did a census of all the people I was ever closest to, I'd say like 80% Jewish, Mm. 85% Jewish my whole life. Mm. My first wife was Jewish. My current wife is Jewish. Mm. Uh, My two kids are very Jewish and Mm. had uh, bar mitzvahs. My oldest one really is into it. My youngest one said, I'm a man now, right? And I said, yes, you are. He says, then I choose to be an atheist (laughs) as a man. (laughs) Like, I get it. I get it. A also, good I should, yes, that's how they work, right? He saw the angle. That's he saw right. the workaround. <laughs> also, I should say that when they submitted their bar mitzvah speeches, this is my oldest, the rabbi said, this is 90% jokes and 10% religious. You need to reverse the ratio or else no one will ever work with your parents again. No one, he threatened that no one in this town, the town being New York City. Sounds like a fun speech. He literally said, Howard Stern's daughters were bought mitzvah here. Oh my um, God. Jerry Seinfeld's children were bought mitzvah here, and they didn't try. I know funny. They did not try this level of humor. And I read the I read the uh, I read the bar mitzvah speech. It really was funny and really irreligious. So he changed it, and it was good. That's so, so yeah. Funny. That's where I was. And on Israel, so I put it aside a little bit geopolitically. But I do think that, like any country, they've made some bad political decisions, let's say, or ones I wouldn't mm-hmm. have made. One, 
the uh, current leadership is not who I would have voted for. Well, the current leadership, but I don't think I'd have ever voted for Netanyahu. I'd probably, I don't know, throw my vote away on labor for a while and try to figure something out. But I always thought that, I always thought that it was doing things pretty great compared to any kind of reasonable standard. Like what are the, how good are countries? Well, you know, New Zealand is a uh, pretty um, homogenous, forward-thinking, small country with manageable borders. You take all that into account. New Zealand's doing good, but they do have a lot of natural advantages. Honduras is not doing that well, but they have a lot of natural disadvantages. I then look at countries like Costa Rica, which is doing really well and in a pretty bad neighborhood, let's say. And I look at actually Botswana in sub-Saharan Africa is doing really well. I've done studies on what makes countries do better or worse. Small population is pretty important. And sad to say, just truth to say, homogeneity of the population does seem to comport with um, success. Mm-hmm. And I think that's because if you're in a Scandinavian country, which has, which all have small populations, but the Finns think of themselves as Finns right. and the Norwegians think of themselves as Norwegians. And the more that changes, the less likely people are to say, well, sure, I'll pay 60% of right. my, t- my income into taxes, but it's not going to no one. It's not going to people I have no relationship with. It's going to my people. Right. So America used to have, used to be I think better about that, but we are such a big country. I mean, of the 330 million of us, we'll have some who are raging successes and some who aren't, but I do think we have less of an idea of what it means to be American. So by all those measures, I think Israel was doing really well by the neighborhood, mm-hmm. by the history, by what uh, what are some, th- okay, the country of Israel is founded. If we asked a hundred smart people, let's work out the scenarios, the the tree of where this can go. I think Israel wound up in the top, I don't know, 15% of possible futures. Mm -hmm. So I always gave them a lot of credit. And I also always, I've, I don't know, studied terrorism. Things get said about terrorism that are just untrue, that, um, comfort the person who doesn't like unnecessary violence and who mm-hmm. thinks that um, that when someone is mad at you, there must be a reason that you caused yeah. it. And that may be true and that may not be true. But then again, there is terrorist, terrorism and terrorists in your life or at your border and you got to do something about that. So I, I had much more sympathy uh, for Israel with having to deal with a terrorist problem, I will say, not of their making, um, they seem to have done it as well as any country would have. You can't compare them to Norway, which has no terrorist problem, right. right? You can't compare them to other countries that don't have a population that were offered peace, imperfect or whatever, and rejected peace, and have all these people telling them good rejection, keep throwing yourself to slaughter and take out a few of your enemies with you. I do think any other country in that situation would have done something along the lines of what Israel did. So this brings me up to October 7th. I didn't even talk about it on my show that much just because I I thought that it created too many um, people who would hear about Israel either have a great deal of knowledge, maybe more than me, or have such a dearth of knowledge, it takes too long to get them oriented. Mm, Whereas with other things, like if I'm talking about U.S. politics, that's just not the case. There's not that huge gap in my audience. So that brings me up to October 7th. 
and from there, I don't know. <laughs> you yeah. want me to? Yeah. Tell you so, what I so yeah, yeah, I want to hear like what because you you know you kind of centered it now, and I'm just curious how, why, what changed. So as I say in this uh, in this talk I gave that Yale went to, I never looked at Israel. The words that I used to describe my relationship to Israel, I am Jewish. I am a Jew, but I never looked at it religiously. I didn't use words or think of it in concepts like um, promised or chosen mm-hmm. or religion or um, anything. How about even like Zionism? Like, was that a word you were comfortable with? Or yeah, uh, that's a that's a really fraught word. It was made so toxic that yeah. sometimes you say it and people can't hear what you're talking about. That really so, bothers me because it's such yeah. a in Israel. It's like the least controversial world word. It's like saying yeah. being an American here. So well, I know, what it is is patriot. Yeah, patriotism. I, I, but and I they also, tried to do it. The left tried to do that with patriotism, and the, right. and you know, then again, the right played into it with the Patriot Act, which maybe anathemized patriotism, but. Patriotism does cut across countries, and Zionism is a. Uh, I feel is like it was taken from us, though, because yeah. I know so many people in Israel who are left of all of us, but also, you know, left of people who here would consider themselves anti Zionist, but they would still consider themselves Zionist because for us, it, what it means is just like you believe in the right of Israel to exist. Yeah. Like it's considered so non controversial. And then I was listening to an interview yesterday. Um, on I think on NPR with um, the guy from the ADL. I forgot his name. Um, and he's defending Jonathan him. Greenblatt. Yeah, that? Jonathan yeah. Greenblatt. And he's defending, you know, Israel is doing all the things and the talking points on the left and the right and this and that. And then she's like, would you consider yourself a Zionist? And it's, it's funny because it's like, I, I don't know, they've like, the meaning has changed so much in the U.S. Because he's like, of course. Like, for us, right. it's, I don't know. I, I hate that it was turned toxic. Then again, the whole country is considered toxic. So, Yeah, I do. So a few, a few points about that. One is we have stopped uh, fighting for the most part, although in Gaza they are, we have stopped fighting uh, in in literal terms and uh, with bullets and we mostly fight with words. Mm -hmm. And so we have a tendency to say, therefore it's not that substantive a fight. I think it is. I think most of a, basically we are engaged in word wars and language wars. And they're the, it's the easiest thing to win because the people who defend language, they'll just give it up. So if you want to redefine whiteness as something to ab- apologize for, where's mm-hmm. the constituency of white people who right. will ever, who will you know, yeah. yeah, who will defend it because that makes you seem like, you know, some sort of racist or right. if you want to, if you want to change the definition of privilege or if you want to change the definition of harm, let's say, yeah. it doesn't seem that much, okay, I don't want to hurt your feelings and it doesn't matter and it's just a word. So people who are activists, actually, their activism is based on words so often in the United States. Yeah. States. And if we could get the word changed, maybe we could get the concept changed. Maybe not. Maybe we could just, what really happens is they just muddy the concept, right? Mm -hmm. So with Zionism, I do think because there's the Z, it sounds foreign and it sounds (laughs) a little weird, words with a Z and an X. And it sounds like uh, some sort of alien force. I was called a Ziotard yesterday. (laughs) Nice. I kind of like that, yeah. Yeah. And I, I think that when you say, yeah, I'm a Zionist, and a large percentage of people will say, oh, Zionism is racism. The United <laughs> Nations had a resolution on yeah. its books for over 20 years 
equating or just defining Zionism as racism. And racism has also been changed to, uh, or white supremacy has been changed. It used to mean Klansmen, now it means everyone, just the background condition. (laughs) Racism used to mean bigotry, now it means pretty much benefiting from a system that we all live under. So now it just means being white. Yeah, right. There are all these um, asp- there are all these actions, these microaggressions that get defined as racism. But what is racism? You ask these people who are on college campuses and believe in postmodern theory. Racism is th- the system of government in which we live in. Systemic racism is all around us. So what is racism? Racism is like oxygen. Mm. Racism is in the air. Zionism is racism. Racism is the worst thing, the most anathemized thing. I'm going saying I'm a Zionist to people who are, I, I would say, the 45% of the Long Beach population yeah. who are Latino, <laughs> at least 90% of that 40% do not give a shit. That's right. But <laughs> I do God think that, him. yeah. And and that's the, by the way, for them and their self-interest, that is absolutely the right stance to take. That's right. But when you say Zionism is racism, and then you ask if someone's a Zionist, to a large percentage of the postmodern thinkers, they are saying, you just admitted to being a racist. Mm. And I don't want to play that game. I don't want right. to back off the idea. If you define Zionism, if some say, oh, it's the belief that Israel should exist, 100%. It's the belief that Israel should exist as a Jewish state, 100%. It's the belief that Israel should exist as a Jewish state that defends itself and doesn't allow itself to cease becoming uh, the Jewish state that it is. I'm with that also. So I believe right. those mm-hmm. things. Yeah. Right. But right. I know what they're doing. They're trying to use the word as a cudgel, which is the success that the postmodern um, thinkers have had. They haven't yeah. had real success, right? Defund the police. The police were defunded almost nowhere. And in the couple cases where they were, like Portland, it's been an unmitigated disaster. That's but right. they had the word war and they kind of won the word war for a while. Now they're trying to win the word war on Zionism. Mm-hmm. I don't know if the point is to let them have them or not let them have it, but just let it be a word war and then maybe Israel could win the actual war. That's right. I mean, if we have to choose one, we'll take the actual war. Yeah. And I not just feel care like in the this. last 20 years or so since I started being interested in kind of Israel advocacy and Israel in the U.S., um, it used to be that if you're left wing, you think that Israel needs to return land for peace. And if you're right wing, you think, you know, Israel should be more uh, hawkish or whatever. And now it's like, oh, if you're left wing, you think Israel shouldn't exist at all. And if you're right wing, then you support Israel's right to self-defense. Like, I don't know. We shifted so much in that I'm talking about the U.S. like discourse and the Western discourse. Yeah, I could think of your left wing, but it's probably not true with the Democratic Party, but it is true with uh, the young people in the mm-hmm. Democratic Party. Too much get, gets made of how important the views of young people in the Democratic Party are. Agreed. You know, the voting because, age? 45. <laughs> or just like know that uh, their idiotic opinions will either eventually become uh, moderated or yeah. or not. <laughs> and we'll yeah. all be driven over a cliff and who We does? thought they were going to leave them at college, right? But now they're at... Slate and other places. I can say <laughs> yeah, that no, things that, about Slate. You, you know, <laughs> no, that is true. There, we thought, there was the there was the idea that look, when these people reached the real world, but they became such a critical mass that they got to define the real world. Plus, the real world of institutions, you know, NGOs and media, they were beholden to that way of thinking, and especially with media, they weren't forceful enough economically to stand up against this young workforce that provided labor at such a low cost. Right. They were dependent on you. Know, know, 24-year-olds, no matter how idiotic their positions were. Mm -hmm. So October 7th happens, and you, what what happens to you? 
Yeah, I thought it was uh, I thought it was a not a hard choice to see what needed to be done. I was it was very clear that this was, um, you know, as I said, as I said in my show, I got into the idea of the biggest slaughter of Jews since the Holocaust. I spent a time trying to figure out, well, when was that exact day that the Holocaust ended? Because, you know, they liberated Bergen-Belsen and of the 60,000 people who were liberated, I think 15,000 died within a few weeks or months because of things like feeding sickness. My grandmother was liberated from Bergen-Belsen, actually. And she survived. You're such a show-off, Chayla. I know. (laughs) Such a show-off. Maybe she did survive. But, so yeah. if a quarter of the people from the camps who were liberated wound up dying, I don't know when the day of the Holocaust was where less than a thousand people died. It was after the Holocaust. Yeah. It was after yeah. uh, the Third Reich ceased to exist. And it was when the United States flag and the British flag and maybe the Russian flag were being planted all over Germany. Mm-hmm. We're still having a thousand deaths of the Holocaust. So it's the deadliest day since the Holocaust. There's a great deal of sympathy as there should be. And then from that great deal of sympathy, there's the question of, well, who did this? The perpetrators are clearly identified as Hamas. There is the issue, important issue, but not the main issue of how they do it. Let's figure this out. And then to me, these are all a bunch of very clear issues. What do you do when you have a force uh, within your country or within the boundaries and borders of your country who not only have vowed for years to extinguish you, have shown they can do it, and then helpfully, for at least my argument, they're very proud to go on TV soon thereafter and say, we're going to do it a second time, a third time, and a fourth time. They're telling you exactly what their plan is, and there is only one reaction to it that is contemplatable, which is you have to do what you can to eliminate that threat. Every single country in the world would do it. The United States did do it. Mm-hmm. And it took a while, but there is no, and this is where I get back to you know having studied terrorism. You talk to people and they will say, well, when the United States was in um, Mosul or when the United States was in Afghanistan or Iraq, they would go about trying to, um, trying to impose their imperial will on the population. All they did was create two terrorists for everyone they killed. Yes, then where's ISIS now? Because it's shrunk to a pea size on the map. It still exists. But this idea that you could never, you know, if you really play it out to what they're saying, if you strike against terrorists, you'll turn the population against you, you'll create more terrorists. It's like a Hydra. Well, first of all, the Hydra was defeated. We found a way to burn off it. It's a mythological creature. Was it Hercules? Found a way, Pericles, I forget which uh, hero, found a way to burn off the heads and kill the Hydra. Then let's say Hercules. Yeah, I think And just like the terroristic Hydra of ISIS was defeated, as were the Gorillas of the Shining Path, as were the Tamil Tigers, as were the FARC, all these groups that use terrorist tactics, they all have been defeated. They all have been defeated with military force. It doesn't mean that every time you use military force, it works. It just means it can work. It worked for the United States. When there's a gigantic military imbalance, this is, it It should spell doom for the people on the wrong side of that imbalance. And that, to me, was the obvious choice. Some horrible things are going to happen. I need Israel to um, go as lightly as possible in terms of civilian deaths for moral reasons and for right. PR reasons. But I, but I was going to say ISIS. But Hamas <laughs> absolutely needs to be uprooted. And yeah, I'm not buying into the... Um, 
rhetoric of, well, there's no way to totally eradicate them. Israel leaders are not talking about totally eradicating everyone with, with Hamas sympathies. Right. What they're talking about is taking away the power of Hamas to do this again. It needs to be done. It, right. Because every country in the world would do that mm-hmm. if you care about your actual citizens. That's which right. is the duty, the the purpose of a country to care about the safety of its citizens. Well, I think most countries in the world wouldn't send their soldiers in there to get killed every day. Uh, I think most countries or many countries would probably just do an aerial campaign uh, and wouldn't do it as, you know, attempt to do it surgically. Assad would, for sure. (laughs) The countries that have been very successful at crushing dissent Mm -hmm. would certainly do that. But Israel doesn't, and it's good that Israel doesn't for obvious reasons. Do you have a sense? No one says, why does, no one says, you know, Boko Haram, why does Nigeria just give them a third of their territory? Right. Right? Well, if you go I thought we defeated them with those signs that we held up. (laughs) (laughs) Right, or Coney, right? Remember that? Oh Oh my God, God. that was so stupid. So wait, do you have a sense from your audience of like, are people with you? Do your listeners agree, disagree? Are they, for the most part, like supportive of what you're saying? For the most part, they are, but the ones who aren't, I mean, I've lost a major share of the audience. You're kidding. I have, no, because most of my audience I brought over with Slate and they are, let's say, democratically inclined. I have a, uh, uh, a message board on Reddit where there are people, I always say most of my audience is center left. And I always have people saying, not, not me, I'm conservative, but most of them right. are. Many of them, many, many people write in and say, you know, I'm to the left of you, but I always appreciate the points you raise and how you challenge me. But on Israel, on this question, we look at the listening statistics and there has been a significant fall off. So wow. I talk about this on the show and then people will write in saying, you know, I know that Many people in your audience don't like it, but I think it's great. Some people write and say, I'm not exactly where you are in Israel, but this, this is all I want. But you're consistently talking about the issue and analyzing the issue in the way you analyze all these other issues, yeah. which is if there are great untruths, I talk about them no matter where right. they come from. Right. So I talk about the idea that, you know, the tunnels under Al-Shifa Hospital, and I talk the way I saw it is there's this huge tunnel under Al-Shifa Hospital. And if you want to hold up the standard as, oh, there needs to be a complex system with computer terminals and, you know, 500 Kalishnikovs still stored there (laughs) after Hamas fled. Yeah, you're never going to get that because what is a command module except a cell phone and a laptop? So there's a huge tunnel under Al-Shifa Hospital. Those tunnels connected to the other tunnels. The standard of is this a legitimate target? I think by every law of um, war standard would be, would have been met. So I talk about that. You know, I talk about the idea that for a while, the New York Times for four days in a row had as its lead story, which is the upper right story in the paper, um, so much depends on what Israel finds under Al-Shifa Hospital. They put out this video of interconnecting rooms. If this is not shown to exist, it will really denigrate what Israel has been saying as its justification. All right? Then there, it becomes George Santos is the main story one day, right. and it becomes the second lead story. <laughs> then they actually go into Al-Shifa Hospital. They actually find what they find there. It becomes less written about. There's a story on page a a twelve. Five days later, there is no coverage that mentions Al-Shifa for the last week. So basically what happened is New York Times standard is Al-Shifa needs to have this complex series of tunnels under it or else attacking it is not justified. They find 
a large tunnel and other tunnels under it, nothing gets written about right. afterwards. Mm. So well, I, I mean, but that's a enough. standard that I've held. I have applied that sort of standard in media analysis on my show to past events. I talked about the steel dossier that way. Mm-hmm. I talked about Trump's uh, tariffs on steel, for instance, different kind of steel. I will say, <laughs> you know, you have consistently said X. X has not been the case. You should be called to account for it. When right. I do it on Israel, I get much more pushback than anything else. Interesting. Amazing. I mean, I just want to tell our listeners, they should definitely watch your comedy seller um, we'll post a link to yeah. it uh, because that was really incredible. I mean, the way yeah. you broke down your trip because you went to Israel, right? How long ago? A couple of weeks ago or? Yeah, a few weeks ago. For like weeks, three days, right? I think for, let's see, I think I was in the country for 60 hours. What's that? Oh, wow. That's wow. it? I think um, so. Or maybe I was up for 60 hours of the, I think oh I was there God. for four days. And I, I told you at that, at that event, and wow. I, you know, I, I, I will tell our audience too that I was just, I was very impressed because it was the first time you were there, right? Um, yes. and kind of the uh, first time you kind of took a deep dive into these issues. And I thought you captured you did. the essence of the country very well and just the, the general mood, which is hard to, you know, it's hard to explain. Israel yeah. is like, we think we're a Western country. We like to pretend we're a Western country, <laughs> but we're not always a Western country. Yeah, I think, so I was a reporter for 10 years and I missed, maybe 12. I miss being a reporter, going someplace, having my mind be open and just uh, recording my impressions. So it was great to be able to do that. And I found out that I I came, you know, I've known a lot about Israel and have read a lot about Israel without being there. But I always, from the beginning of my uh, career as a journalist, I always talk about a very early story that I um, reported, which was the plane crash of John Kennedy Jr. And I went up to Hyannisport, and I and other reporters were outside the house, the houses, the compound of the Kennedys. And until you actually go there, you always hear the phrase, the Kennedy compound, yeah. the Kennedy compound. You hear a phrase like clapboard houses. I don't, I think <laughs> yeah. I know what that means. But then when you see it, it's like, you know, yeah. this get, this got, and Camelot, that's behind the castle. This got build, built up to such a, an amazing degree. When I'm there, I'm like, yeah, it's like a bunch of houses. They're <laughs> colored white. They're not from some other planet or other species. They're touchable. They're tangible. They're kind of less than impressive than hearing the phrase the Kennedy compound for all these years. Mm-hmm. So going to Israel and seeing that, seeing the whenever you hear about the rankings of the Israel military and you hear about tales of what uh, Mossad did to extract mm-hmm. uh, vengeance after, uh, you know, on Black uh, September and all, all of this, it does kind of get built up and maybe you th- miss the vulnerability of the people mm-hmm. and the diversity of the people and the fact that there are all kinds of Jews, mm-hmm. right? And there are all kinds of Jews who love to argue with each other, but in this case, they were really, really united. And I was, uh, I'd read Dan Senor's book beforehand, mm-hmm. and I had also read Ross Douthit's book about decadence in America. Mm. And I, in, in the Comedy Cellar, well, actually, it was a, on my podcast, I put these two ideas together and contrasted the seriousness of Israel society with essentially the decadence. And I don't mean champagne and snorting Coke off a hooker's <laughs> ass. I just mean 
the leeway that American society, youth on up, has to say, engage in silly conspiracy theories or yeah. spend their time, not that the Israelis don't have reality TV show, but just spend oh, yes. their time mm-hmm. which, with such deep nonsense. And it wasn't just because a war, one of my impressions was, it's not just because a war was thrust upon the Israelis, it's because they live essentially with war and their country means something to them other than the place we happen to be born. You know, they always say America is the only country founded on an idea. No, not at all. Israel was definitely founded on an idea. Mm -hmm. And whatever idea America was founded on, I think it still exists. But the people, many of the people most engaged in civic life have, I think, thrown away that idea and things like e pluribus unum and melting pot and just like the general goodness of America, like they spent so much time attacking that idea nihilistically. Uh, I don't know what the idea of America is anymore. It's 330 million different ideas or to the 45% of the Long Beach population that's Latino, (laughs) maybe more. But in Israel, there's, you know, a there's a big idea and it's motivating and it's not just because there's a war right now. You can sense it in all of life and they're much less decadent. I don't mean that they're religious. I'm talking about the most non-religious yeah. people, people who are at the Nova Festival doing drugs and enjoying a rave. A rave. Still, they weren't decadent in the way that, say, an That's American true. teenager on his computer engaging in ridiculous conspiracy theories or watching YouTube videos of people with no credibility is decadent. No, what surprised you uh, what surprised you the most when you were there that you didn't kind of see coming? I okay, so do not be offended, but <laughs> I drive around my He's neighborhood of Crown Heights and actually I I work out in the local crunch fitness with many an orthodox Jew, many a religious Jew. I try to uh I I, I do talk to them occasionally. You try. So that, yeah, well, you know, you some of hit us on the re- girls, hit on the women. Yeah, you yeah, think yeah, they yeah, uh, yeah. The, cute, the cute like Nike cute skirts for working out are yes. pretty dope. The black skirts over leggings. Yeah. 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 <laughs> There's a big re-racking of the weights problem in the Jewish community, is what I'm saying. Yeah. So <laughs> that's an anti-Semitic conspiracy. That's because they don't have their cleaning ladies with them to do it. <laughs> Sorry. I think it's beneath them. So I have a lot of interactions. Well, I am friendly with many modern Orthodox, and I have interactions with uh, what? What would you say they they would most likely be in Crown Heights? They're Chabad. The bu- they're, Chassid, they're Chabad. They're Chabad. Yeah. Now, when I go to Williamsburg and see the guys they're in the Sotmer. big fur hats, yeah. Okay. They're Sotmer. So I see the Sotmer, yeah. and I see how they're. Well, I observe their attitudes towards from everything of crossing the street to just. <laughs> They're always like a 12, four-year-olds hanging out yeah. by themselves and outside of buildings. they're all wearing the same clothes. <laughs> well, they're that's very true. independent. The yeah, kids they are like very stop parent. They have twelve. Yeah. I guess they have twelve kids, and like yeah. you can't watch all of them. Exactly. So no, you make like you, the one, the older one watches. Yeah, the rest yeah. Of them. yeah, but the older one's six sometimes. Yeah. Anyway, yes, that is okay. true. So I have these thoughts on the Haredi would Haredi, be the yeah. Yeah. Haredi. Haredi. Right, so I wasn't that pro Haredi yeah. going in. <laughs> I thought they were more takers and less givers, and I thought they made complications uh, in terms of being uh, some extremist settlers. But I do find, and I was with people on the trip, some of them very religious, and they were just telling me about the different ways there are to be a Jew in Israel. And I found myself liking them a lot more. And maybe because in America, it seems like 
their whole purpose is, okay, we'll live in America, but we won't be of America. And I've had many, many interactions where it seems like we're not engaged in the same civic project. From everything from, I'm talking about maybe um, the Haredi of America. (laughs) People in Williamsburg, essentially fundamentalist Jews who were the urban Amish, I thought of <laughs> And I would go to the park with my kids when they were young. That's great. And they would not close the gate after they went in. And when you go with kids, you got to close the gate. And I would always, you know the thing where you anchor on something? If if some white people or some Latino yeah, people yeah, didn't yeah. close the gate, I'd be like, there's just some people that didn't close the gate. But the second time yeah. the, the Satmars did not close the gate, yeah. I'm like, there's something about them. That's so okay, annoying anyway. to me. I'm like, you're representing <laughs> us. You're like our front, you're our starting line. Like, yeah. because you That's look so like unfair. <laughs> it is. Because there know, are great Satmers and there are shitty Satmers. Like, that's just the way the world is. Wait, you the Satmers are the oh, ones no. that don't like Israel, right? They do like Israel. They don't okay. like political, secular Zionism, oh, to be okay. precise. <laughs> but who are the ones with the hats? With the fur? The big fur hats. Yeah, those are most Hasidim. All Hasidim yeah. wear that, except the for Chabad. They wear like the, fe- the fedoras. I like, yeah, I like the feeling. Like when Kyra comes to New York, we're going to, yeah, we'll do it. We'll give do you a tour of Crown Heights. Yeah. 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 But my point was in Israel, when I saw yeah. them, when I did a little interacting, I was freaking glad they were there. And yeah. I did yeah. not have that opinion of in the US where we're <laughs> engaged in a different <laughs> civic project. I'm, I'm the outsider, maybe in Israel, and that explains a lot of it. But I love yeah. their presence. I loved all the different flavor of Jew I got. <laughs> it was uh, pretty necessary, I That's thought. so interesting. Did you meet I any feel- non-Jewish um, soldiers or non-Jewish people who were involved we, in like civic duty? Yeah. I, yes. Not soldiers. I, mm-hmm. I would have loved to have talked to a few Druze. Yeah. I have yeah. not had many an interaction with the very mysterious Druze people. <laughs> but yeah, I talked to um, Christians who live there. I talked to, I guess you would, I guess he was uh, Arab Muslim Bedouin. Mm-hmm. Um, and they were, you know, I, I guess because I was talking to them, they were not, you know, radical Islamists. Mm-hmm. But to me, I said to myself, th- we can all work this out. These people can be worked with. I think there's yeah. a, there was, you know, they, in Israel, we say, kafa, like, um, they got a slap in the face, just like we did on October 7th. Um, and I, I live, uh, my parents live near the, the market in Tel Aviv where there's a lot of Arabs and Jews. And you could see like just the, the, the feeling in the air of kind of like shock and almost shame, somebody said. Like a, a lot of them feel like kind of embarrassed or ashamed. Um, and I think it, it, it will be interesting because there's a, a lot of people thought that they would be, that they would start violence and that they would, you know, because, because there have been terrorist attacks and terrorist attempts from Arab citizens of Israel. And so far, knock wood, like not only has nothing happened, but it seems that they are becoming, in, in uh, surveys and stuff, they're identifying more and more as with their Israeli identity. Well, I think, you know, Mansour Abbas, I mean, this mm-hmm. guy, he seems like a fantastic, I don't know, I, I don't want to go too far and say, they sometimes <laughs> say, where are the, where are the Palestinian... Um, uh, leaders who could mm-hmm. lead us into the next century, or yeah, you know, and Mansour Abbas. The- for for people who don't know, he's a he's a head of a, a Muslim and an Islamist party. So an Israeli uh, 
former member of Knesset, a member of the government who is head of an Islamist party, if you don't think this country is weird enough. Um, yeah. But he's and, one of the people who came out after October 7th and said, hey, everybody, chill out. Like, this is a terrible thing that happened. Yeah. Right. Which and is I very think important. If, he, if that's the template, maybe he's an exceptional um, Arab member of the Knesset. Mm-hmm. But if that's anything close to the template, it gives me a great amount of hope. I, you know, talking to people about politics there, depending on how the next government organizes itself, I could see him mm-hmm. being a member of the next government. I'll tell yeah. you a quick story. There were members of his party, I think um, her name is Yassine, Iman mm-hmm. Yassine, yeah, yeah. who essentially denied the uh, much of the attacks of mm-hmm. October 7th. And she did so without seeing the 47-minute, although it's not always 47-minute movie, that was put together with GoPro cameras of terrorist attacks. She mm-hmm. just said, uh, as far as I know, there were no rapes, there were no babies who were, I don't yeah. know if she said killed or beheaded. She denied. She, she engaged mm-hmm. in a lot of denialism. It wasn't 40 babies. It was only 10 babies. Everybody I know, right? Relax. Only 10. Yeah. So I watched that movie in the Knesset, and she was there. Oh, wow. And she got, I didn't know much of the background. I know that there were some, one or two uh, people in, I think maybe just one woman in a, a headdress who I took to be Muslim based on how she was wearing it. And with about 10 minutes left, I hear a commotion, and she stands up, and she just makes her way out of the room, starts staggering out of the room, grasping for anything solid to give her ballast. Like she can't, this was, if this were acting in a movie, you would say you got to dial it back 50% because you're being like a silent movie actress um, trying to convey an emotion over the top. But that's not what was going on. Uh, A lot of the times, people's actual reactions seem like cartoonish reactions. And she just staggered out of that screening and she just couldn't take it. Mm. And then afterwards, I mean, she has since apologized and she was disciplined. And afterwards, she hasn't, a little bit beforehand, she hasn't engaged in any of that denialism. Some other, I don't speak Hebrew, some other Israeli members of the Knesset said, yes, you should go. Like This one older Mm. woman was very upset with her. But that to me shows if she she's an Arab elected official mm-hmm. who was among the Arab members of Knesset, what are there like ten members now? Maybe she was on one extreme, or maybe the ninth or tenth least sympathetic to the Israelis' plight. I was there in the moment where she got sympathy, where right. it just overwhelmed her. Yeah. And so I do think that there is a lot of possibility for growth. I do think that the Arabs who have lived in Israel don't live under the the media environment of Hezbollah or Hamas. Yeah, so they right. actually get more accurate information. They interact with Jews in a way, especially the ones not in the West Bank. They interact with Jews right. in productive ways. It seems to be something of a path forward. It reminds me important. Yeah. It reminds me that Moses, you know, in the Torah Moses was the leader who got the Jews out of Egypt. And the reason it says that he, you know, he did not grow up in Egypt with the slaves. He was, he grew up with the, in the palace of the Pharaoh and he was a prince actually. And so a lot of people are like, well, you know, rabbis ask this question all the time. Like why Moses who didn't have any of the history that the Jewish people had, he was really an outsider to them, but he understood what freedom was because he grew up as a free person in a free home, in a free society, whereas the other Jews didn't. And I think about that when it comes to the Arabs. Like, it might take an Arab who did not grow up 
in the West Bank or in Gaza, but actually grew up in Israel, who's going to be the one to get up and say, like, this is our path forward. This is mm-hmm. what we need to do. And we, Israel needs to support those people. Like, we need to identify those Arab citizens who can do that. And we might not like everything about them, but we it's need tough. to embrace that and yeah. work with them. It's tough because yeah. there's a huge lack of of trust now. And, you know, I, I, I hate to say it because I was one of those people who I think was over, like, over supportive of, you know, Muslims and Arabs in Israel um, as a way that, like, lefties sometimes kind of look at minorities, right? Yeah. And I think there's just, I mean, I hope, I hope you're right and I hope that's true, Uh but I think there's also what you said, Mike, about like what they're what people are exposed to. I mean, I know a lot of Arabs in Israel watch Al Jazeera, but they also see what what we see. And I think a huge problem in in the West, in America, with Muslims in America, not to mention the Muslim world, is that a lot of them just don't believe that October seventh yeah. happened. Oh yeah, um, yeah. Or oh, they yeah. didn't think it was something. You know, if I, I think a lot of them, and 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 by the way, I think for for Jews and Muslims, it should be equally as uh, appalling to watch this footage because I'd be yeah. I'm horrified by what has been done to Jews. But I would also, if, if this was a Jewish person doing it, I would be equally as horrified that this was done in my name. You know, right? Yeah. Well, that that was another takeaway. You remember me saying this from my speech, which is that my first impression was, on behalf of my Muslim friends, I was appalled. I was just appalled yeah. that all this violence was done, and it was always punctuated after the gunshots with praise Allah. Right. <laughs> not I a know. theologian, I but I do not think that any God w- wanted or b- uh, breathed this into being. Maybe no, they I didn't think you're mean right. It that way, like like they don't mean <laughs> yeah. river to the sea that way. <laughs> right, right, right. Which river? Which Allah? Oh, yeah. uh, Allah, Allah Stein. He owned the uh, electronic store on 34th oh Street. Um, I do think that the media part of it's pretty important. And even if a lot of people watch Al Jazeera, Al Jazeera and Al Jazeera journalists, some of whom I know, Al Jazeera in the U.S. is a lot more watered down than the Al Jazeera, you, you know, the yeah. pure, uncut, mainstream Al Jazeera. <laughs> but it's also a whole lot different from what you get on the Quds Network or Al-Aqsa mm-hmm. or the Hezbollah controlled media. And a lot of it is because the journalists there, even though, you know, they're working for the ruling party of a Gulf state, they interact with the other Western journalists and they know that if they're engaged in straight up propaganda, they're going to lose their status and possibly, you know, lose the ability to go work for the BBC for their next Mm. job. So I do think that tempers it. And another major wind of change is happening is for so long, the Palestinian population has been egged on by the neighboring states who wanted to, you know, especially dictatorial autocrats who wanted to point to the injustice of Palestinians to get the heat off themselves. But that's changing, you know, and as other states as Saudi Arabia, but also a lot of the other states are making peace with the, um, with Israel the Palestinians are going to lose some of their international backing. And their international backing is especially upset at Hamas. And if that was the only thing that was happening, I would say, oh, 
I would predict in a decade, you'd have inroads to peace. But the frustrating thing is you don't have the Arab states backing up the Palestinian as much anymore. You have leftists in the United States backing them up. (laughs) And so as long as they get the impression that let's reject 22% of the land for peace, and maybe that was a bad deal, but as long as they get the impression that we have a lot of backing behind us, they won't trade land for peace. They'll trade uh, bodies for some imagined future deal. And so I think that I am all right behind you in being horrified by the horrors of war and wanting Israel not to drop actually 20,000-pound bombs if a 10,000-pound or a 5,000-pound bomb will kill the bad guy. Absolutely. I'm for that. I can't swear. I don't know that everything Israel's done has actually comported with laws of proportionality. I know they try. So I'm all for you there. But when you give the when you give Hamas the message, we've got your back. You're guaranteeing the deaths of more Palestinians. Mm-hmm. You're acting as a human shield. I, I agree. That's that's what's like their only their only win in this war. The only achievement they had. They didn't get the support from the Arab states. They didn't get drag Hezbollah in. They didn't drag the uh, Israeli Arabs in. They didn't drag the West Bank in. Who did they get? Um, people in the West. That's the only. Well, like certain people. Achievement, certain yeah. people, yeah. yeah. It's unbelievable. So are you going to go back to Israel? Yeah, I'd love to go back okay, during yeah. more peaceful times yeah. <laughs> for a time where I could sleep more than four hours yes. a night. Yes. Did you eat good yeah. food there at least? You can't not, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, it depends. I took a, a trip last uh, year with a bunch of journalists, and unfortunately our hosts, sorry, Chayla, they only had us eat at kosher restaurants. Oh my uh, and not Stop the best it. ones. You, you racist. Stop not, it. But then we couldn't go to like eat at like hummus at Arab villages and we couldn't go to like the chef oh. restaurants. Oh. Okay. Okay. <laughs> right away Sorry, she I'm, has to she you see you see what I put up with on this podcast. No, we, sh- we have they to be hate. united now after October 7th. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Talk, talk about the martyrs. <laughs> Every time I record I feel like I I'm a sacrificing myself here. Anyway, <laughs> thank you so much. I mean, I feel like we could continue talking for another yeah, hour. Yeah, we but could go on we for need hours. To, uh, yeah. So thank you, Mike. Well, we'd love to have you back so we can yeah. finish this conversation and talk about more media stuff, but another time. I'd love that. Yeah. Thank you guys for having me. It was fantastic. Thank you. Thank, thank you, you. Thank you. Thank you. 